Morning. Uh, this morning's reading is Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law um, until all that is accomplished. Therefore, whoever re- relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless the righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, 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 morning. Uh, If maybe you've been coming here for a while and you don't recognize me, that's okay. It's not about me, it's about Jesus. But uh, I'm actually, I'm one of the pastors here at Village. Uh, I lead the team over in South Belfast. Obviously, the better part of Belfast to be in village. Um, uh, anyway, uh, so if you don't know me, my name's Andrew, and now that we're acquainted, I feel like we can get stuck in. We've, we've got a lot to get through this morning, um, so hopefully you don't have Mother's Day plans uh, too early in the day. I'm only joking, it won't take that long. Um, I was thinking about this this week. Uh, do you know whenever you get a new phone, right, or, or Apple do those updates, um, and they promise you it's a new phone, but it's really the same thing. But they change something slightly, so you know how to use it. It looks the same, but um, it takes you a wee while to, to work out exactly how to work it. Or if you get a new car, right, you don't forget how to drive a car. All cars drive the same, but it takes you a wee while how to work, out, work the heating or work the radio or, or work out where the wipers are. Or what about those updates you get? You know the updates that come up on your computer screen and you just click agree to and no one ever reads has anyone ever read those? I don't even think the people that wrote them have read them, okay? And you just click agree, and you don't really read it. And that got me thinking about, well, if I click agree to this new set of updates, what happens to the old ones? Am I still agreeing to the old ones? Or is it like, am I just agreeing to the new ones? And this is kind of the idea that Jesus is talking about um, in our passage this morning, right? There's a similar thing that's going on, and it relates to uh, one of the oldest um, one of the oldest arguments, one of the oldest discussions in Christianity. It's been going on since, actually it's been going on, gone on since Jesus spoke these words. Uh, so much so that even in the early church before, uh, in the first century, uh, Paul and Peter had to address this. And, and the, 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 the question is this, what do Christians do about the Old Testament? What do Christians do about all the laws in the Old Testament? And there's, there's two sides to this debate, right? So on one side, you have what theologians call antinomianism, okay? So that literally, you don't need to remember that word. That just means that um, we're free in Jesus. We can do whatever we want. So you can just go and, and, and live however you want to live, right? And it's all good. It's all, it's all fine because we're saved in Jesus. And the other side, you have legalism, right? So on legalism side, it says that, no, 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 Christians have to keep these laws. And actually, that's part of how you are a Christian is by obeying all these things. So if I obey all these laws, then I'll, I'll be a better Christian, or, or maybe even I will be a Christian. And Jesus, in this passage for the first time, addresses the question of what the people of the kingdom, right? That's me and you. We're going to get to that in a second. People of the kingdom. We are people of the kingdom of God. We're, we're, we're in Jesus. Um, what we do about the Old Testament, or a better way to, to put it, and this is our, our key question for us this morning, you need to remember. Uh, are Christians bound by a moral law? Are Christians bound by a moral law? Do, is there a certain way that, that we have to live? Is there certain things that we have to obey? 
So uh, we've been, this is our, is this our fifth Sunday in the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah. So up to this point, we've seen that Jesus has been talking about this new thing that he's starting, this kingdom, right? Uh, so in Matthew 4, you see that he's been going around, uh, he's been casting out demons, he's been healing the sick, so he's shown that he has authority over the spiritual world and over the, and over the physical world, and he's preaching this thing called the good news of the kingdom. And the good news of the kingdom is that the kingdom of God has come, and it's going to be available to everyone, and it's going to be about God establishing his reign and rule on the earth and restoring things the way they were meant to be. And so he's been talking about what the the people of the kingdom are like, the characteristics. We have these things called the Beatitudes, these statements of flourishing. So you're blessed when you're mourned. You're blessed when you're poor in spirit. You're blessed whenever you're persecuted. And he's been talking about the kingdom and the people of the kingdom last week. Uh, Chris Lewis was here, I think, wasn't he? Chris was here, and, and he talked about salt and light, ordinary people doing ordinary things for Jesus. But now, for his Jewish listeners, he addresses the elephant in the room. Or the, I guess for them it would be the camel in the desert, I'm not sure. But um, come on, Thomas. I'm a dad. I'm allowed to have dad jokes. Uh, because for Jewish listeners, right, if he's bringing in this new thing, which they were presumably pretty excited about, probably confused, but pretty excited about. Jesus is starting a new thing. Then, then what happens to all that has come before, right? All the history books, all the law and instruction, all the, the wisdom literature, all the prophets. What happens to that? If you, it's interesting for us. If you, if you, um, I don't know if you've ever done this. I've done it the last two years is, is, is read through the Bible in a year, right? And, and you're reading a few chapters every day. It's around round about September time when you get to the New Testament. That's two-thirds of the year that you're in the Old Testament. So what do we do with that? I think this passage, these, uh, you know, three, four, these four verses are, 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 is one of the most difficult passages for us to understand. And, so, uh, and that's why there's been debate about it for all of the history of the church. And, and what I want to do this morning is to keep it really, really simple. And what I want to do is answer this question of, are Christians bound by a moral law by these three statements, okay? So remember these three things, and we're going to move through them one by one. Remember this. It's all about Jesus. That's an easy one. It's all about Jesus. We need to obey Jesus, and we need the righteousness of Jesus. So remember those three things. I want to pray for us, and I want to ask for God's help, and then we'll get stuck into the passage. Um, Heavenly Father, we know that when we open the Bible We come to it with our own sin and our own distractions, Um, even even up on this platform. I'm distracted, Lord. Uh, We come with our distractions. We come with our worries. We come with our fears. We read our own meaning into what you're saying. Lord, remove all those things. Help us this morning. We need your help to understand what you're saying to us. Holy Spirit, move in this room and help us understand what you have to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, So, firstly, are Christians bound by a moral law? I want to answer that by saying it's all about Jesus, okay? Um, Look at verses 17 and 18 with me again. It says this. If you have your Bible or your phone or whatever, keep it open because we're going to be just dipping back in and out of this as we go along. Jesus says this. Do not think that I have... That's an interesting statement he starts with. Do not think. Easy, Jesus. Uh, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. I notice that he says, do not think. 
See, he knows this is difficult. He knows this is something that we're going to struggle with. He knows his listeners. And in his grace, he's just kind of preemptively correcting their thinking. He says, I know you guys. I know what you're like. I know your background. And I know what people are already saying about me. People are saying that Jesus is, is getting rid of all the, you know, he's a heretic. He's blaspheming. I know this. And he said, don't think that. You're thinking that I've come to abolish the Old Testament. You're thinking that I've come to abolish all the law and the prophets. And the thing that you think I'm coming to abolish, I'm not. In fact, I'm actually coming to fulfill these things, not get rid of them. You see, Jesus didn't reject all that came before him, and neither should we. Sometimes I think as followers of Jesus, right, we tend to think of the Old Testament as, as lesser than the New Testament, don't we? Like, we, we, we think that uh, maybe it's just, uh, it's just a bit of the Bible that shows us how things got going, right? How God, things got, how God got things started, uh, started rolling. Or, or maybe it's just to show us, like, a bunch of people that messed up and fallen God so that we don't fall into the same mistakes. Or, or maybe if we're really honest with ourselves, it's just too confusing. Or it's too awkward. All that stuff about wars and, and incest and killing people. All these weird laws. And so maybe we just write it off and don't really engage with it, right? We just skip through it. Like God just really started his proper work uh, whenever Jesus showed up. But here's a key point to understand in this. The truth is that God, God's work in the world didn't just start when Jesus came. God has always been at work in the world, okay? I'm going to say that again so you can remember it. God has always been at work in the world, Right from the beginning of time, God's been active in the world, working out his plan of redemption, working out his plan of how he's going to save his people, how he's going to bring his people back to himself. It's what we call redemptive history, right? If you take notes, write that down, redemptive history. That just means it's the series of events by which God is working out and has always been working out his plan to save his people. It's a story of God at work in creation to restore his people to himself, and it's all fulfilled in Jesus. And so with confidence, we can say that all of history is redemptive history. And so therefore, we can say that all of history is about Jesus. This is what Jesus is saying. This is why the Old Testament matters, because it's about God executing his plan to save his people. And when Jesus says that he has come to fulfill the law and the prophets, he's talking about the Old Testament. That's, they didn't have a New Testament yet, so it would be weird for Jesus to say the Old Testament. They'd be like, what are you talking about? We, we have the Testament. So for us, we call it the Old Testament. Jesus calls it the law and the prophets. But the point is, if we're ever going to understand, why, understand how Jesus fulfills these things, we need to understand how important it is. And that's what I'm trying to show you. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. The Apostle Paul in Timothy, um, writing to his young apprentice. So he has Timothy, who's a younger guy, and he's his apprentice in ministry. And, 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 and Paul appoints him to pastor the church and, say, and he tells him how to lead. And he says this, But as for you, continue of what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from, who, from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Right? That's the scriptures, the Old and New Testament. The Old Testament in Timothy's case which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, God tells us here that, that all Scripture, 
All of this book, every single letter, it's all breathed out by him. It's all God's word, right? And, and if, if, if you don't believe that this is God's word, you're going to struggle to do anything that says, right? I may as well just pick up a history textbook and try and live my life by that. And God inspired all of these words and has given them to us as people. Why? To make us wise for salvation. That is, to show us that the only way we can be saved is through Jesus. Wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. And secondly, so that we can be equipped for every good work. That is, so that we'll be given the tools that we need to live as the people of God. God just doesn't say, right, go and be my people. No, he, t- he tells us how to do that. He speaks to us. If you, if, you, know, if, if you want to hear God speaking to in your life, it's not, it's not a mysterious thing. Well, it is in the truest sense, but it's not, like a, it's not a mystery of how we do that. Just open this and ask him to speak to you. Jesus doesn't reject the Old Testament, and neither should we. That's why we don't just read the New Testament, right? And, and by the way, there are some churches that do that. There are some Christians in the world who just reject the Old Testament, but we don't. We don't just look at the difficult parts of the Old Testament and, and write it off as a different time, or even worse, as a different God. It's all the Word of God. This is why that we've, here we, we, we've taught series in Jonah. Yeah, we've taught series in Ecclesiastes, in the Proverbs. We just finished a series in the Psalms of Ascent, right? Is he able to equip us, or, or make us wise for salvation, equip us uh, to live as the people of God? And Jesus says, next thing he says, he says, it's pretty remarkable, he says, I have come to fulfill the Old Testament. I have come to fulfill all of this. Now, what does Jesus mean by this? So this word fulfill, um, sometimes we get confused about what it means. Uh, the word used here in the Greek literally means to make complete, to fill up. So it has this idea of like um, a glass of water that is filled to the brim that you can't fit in else into. Honestly, when I was thinking about this, it just reminded me of like, imagine the perfect pint of Guinness. That's just like filled to the top. There's nothing more to add to make it any better. What can you, how could you get better than that, right? This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I, I've, come to, I've come to fill the Old Testament up to the top so that there's, there's, there's nothing more to add, so that, so that it's complete, so that it makes sense. Jesus came to finish, to fill up God's work in the world to save his people. But that's fine, and we can get that a little bit. But in order to, under, to understand the magnitude of this, we need to understand uh, that basically in the Law and the Prophets, in the Old Testament, basically there are three types of writing, right? There's three things going on. There are, there's these three kind of categories of writing. There's, 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 there's more than that, but, but they all fall under these three categories, right? So firstly, you have narrative. So that's your history. That's your stories. That's like Genesis, Exodus, Chronicles, and so on. That Anywhere, Kings, Judges, anywhere that uh, it's telling the story of God's people. That's called narrative or history. Then secondly, there's prophecy. That's easy. That's like uh, Isaiah and Zechariah and Malachi and Micah. And, and they're predicting the future events that will come. Actually looking forward and saying, this is what God's going to do. And then thirdly, there, is, uh, the, there are the, com- the commands. So like your Deuteronomy and your Exodus. The things that are, are saying, here's how to live as God's people. And here's simply how Jesus fulfills these commands, or fulfills these things, and we're going to go through them one by one. Remember this. He's the subject of every story. He proves every prophecy, and he completes every command. Jesus is the subject of every story. Uh, J.C. Ryle, I don't know if you're familiar with J.C. Ryle. He was an Anglican bishop of Liverpool in the uh, 19th century, and just wrote a lot of, uh, he, he just wrote a lot of really good stuff. And he said this, 
The Old Testament is the gospel in bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower, right? I love that imagery. So, all the principles and all, all the things that make the gospel there, or this is a bud, by the way, my hand doing this, they're all there. And then in Jesus, the flower opens up and we see it in all its fullness and all its glory. Isn't that a cool image? In the Old Testament, we see Jesus all over the place. That's why Jesus gave us the Old Testament, so that we could see Jesus. Jesus has always been the plan. It wasn't like uh, things weren't working out and he was like, these Israelites are getting it wrong. Well, uh, time to call in plan B. Jesus, get your coat on. It's time to go. No, it wasn't like that. Jesus has always been the plan. God doesn't change his ways of working. So throughout the Old Testament, you see these gospel principles being played out in the lives and the history and the narrative of the nation of Israel who were God's chosen Old Testament people. So let me give you an example of how this works. And I wanted to pick an example of a pretty famous part of the um, uh, Old Testament so that most people are familiar with it. So quick show of hands. Who's heard of the story of David and Goliath? Quick show of hands. Just so I know where we're at. Okay, most people in the room, put your hand up. That's good. So we're all kind of on the same page. So you can read this story in, in 1 uh, Samuel 17, right? So you know the story. Um, and I want to show you that in this story, uh, Jesus is clearly being portrayed because he's the subject of every story in the Old Testament. So think about this. In David, you have one unlikely champion taking on the enemy of all the people and securing victory on their behalf. One unlikely champion. Jesus wasn't a very likely champion. He didn't come with swords and chariots and armies. He came as a, as a carpenter. He came as a carpenter's son. He was born in essentially the Newton Ards of the ancient world. No offense to anyone from Newton Ards, but, but let's be honest, like, it's not exactly a metropolis, is it? I should have said Balamina, but I couldn't betray my own people. Lurgan, insert your own joke there. <laughs> now I'm going to stop now. <laughs> Unlikely hero secures the victory for all the people. And you're like, oh, that's kind of coincidence. Okay, still don't believe me? Look at this. Think about David. David was what? He was a shepherd boy. He wasn't even, whenever he, whenever he was being anointed as king, uh, his, his father didn't even want him to be considered. He was like, no, he's just a kid. He's just a shepherd out in the field looking after his sheep. And what does John, or what does Jesus say in John chapter 10? I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. What about this? How is Satan depicted in Genesis Genesis chapter 3, how is he depicted? As a snake, right? He's a serpent, right? You can read in, in 1 Samuel 17 that, 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 that Goliath wore armor of scales. The actual word in the Hebrew there that's used is the same word that's used to describe scales of a snake or of a fish. And how does David defeat Goliath? He hits him in the head with a stone and then cuts his head off. And what does Genesis 3, the first prophecy about Jesus, tell us? How Jesus, how the Messiah is going to defeat the enemy. How is he going to defeat the Satan? How is he going to defeat the serpent? He's going to crush his head. All the little details pointing to Jesus. Every minutia pointing to Jesus. And you can see this in every story in the, New, in the Old Testament. It all points to Jesus. All of redemptive history is pointing to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He's the subject of every story. But he's also, he also has proven every prophecy. Um, a lot of the Old Testament is this predictive prophecy, right? It's looking forward to the days of the Messiah. 
The prophets look forward to the time when, when God's chosen one, his anointed one. That's what Messiah means. Messiah just means one that's been anointed, one that's been specially chosen. Uh, it's looking forward to when that person would come and redeem and, and save his people once and for all. And a lot of the time, these prophecies are really, really specific, but, and we're going to see that in a second, but as specific as they are, they're, 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 they're just looking forward, right? They're just anticipation. But then Jesus comes, and he fulfills all of these things. He fulfills them in the sense they come to pass in him. They come true in him, right? So you ever, you ever seen Harry Potter movies? I haven't, obviously. Uh, so, so there's a prophecy about him, and it says that, 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 that the prophecies can only be fulfilled in him. And it says, well, I'm not, it doesn't matter. I'm not a nerd. But I'm just telling you that there's a prophecy in that that can only be fulfilled by him. And that's one prophecy. And the first words that Jesus spoke in his public ministry were, the time is fulfilled. You see that in Mark chapter 1. The time is fulfilled. He's saying, I have come. This is what he says here. I have come. Uh, you do, we, we just get it like, oh, I have come, like, oh, I've come to the party, or I've come to church, or I've come. No, Jesus is saying, I have come. And as Jewish listeners, we know, he has come. The time is coming. The time is fulfilled. All the stuff you've learned, everything the prophet spoke of in the days of old, it's all about me. Now, it must have been completely startling to Jewish uh, ears. We don't really get the significance of that. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why Jesus is killed in the end. Because for a Jew to say that, to claim that he fulfilled that stuff, that's blasphemy. But of course, for Jesus, it wasn't blasphemy. Because he really is the fulfillment of the prophets. He's all about Jesus. Let me show you some examples. 2 Samuel 7 shows, tells us that the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David. And if you look at Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus, you can trace that Jesus came from David's line. Micah chapter 5 tells us that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. I'm not talking about Newton Hards again. <laughs> Bethlehem. We see that, obviously, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 35 says that the Messiah would perform signs of healing. And those healing miracles are all over the, New, all over the Gospels. Zechariah 12 tells us the Messiah would be pierced. Obviously, we see that fulfilled on the cross, don't we? And that's only a few. In actual fact, through uh, Jesus' uh, birth, life, death, and resurrection, he fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. And many of them are going to still be fulfilled by him when he returns. So mathematicians, uh, I was talking to Carl about this this morning, mathematicians have done some uh, work, and they've uh, discovered that the, the probability of one person fulfilling only eight prophecies is one in... Uh, one in, well, I'm looking for him in the room, one in a hundred quadrillion, one and 17 zeros. Uh, the, the probability of one person fulfilling 48 prophecies is, uh, is one in 10 to the power of 157. So the probability of one person fulfilling 300 prophecies, over 300 prophecies, it's practically impossible. Only Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So as we look to the prophets, we come face to face with this amazing fact that it's all about him. So he's the subject of every story. He proves every prophecy. And thirdly then, he completes all the commands. Don't worry, we're, build, we're building to something here, guys. Uh, the, the commands bit's the hardest bit for us to understand, isn't it? Right? Because a lot of it's so, it's just plain weird. And we need to admit that to our ears and our culture, it's just weird. So... Who, who likes bacon? I do. A little bit of bacon or a pork sausage with your fry, right? 
Here's what Deuteronomy says. It's the Old Testament law. It says this. Just listen how weird this is to us. And the pig, per pigs, and the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, it is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. How many people are now glad that we live in the new covenant? What about the clothes you're wearing, right? Anyone here wearing a, a, like a, a blended shirt, a polyester blend or something? Okay, listen to Leviticus 19. You shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. What's that all about? In order to understand, uh, understand these commands, we need to understand this, that the commands of the law were given to the people of God so that they could live as the people of God. It works like this. The Israelites were suffering in slavery under Egypt. And, and as I unpack this, you just start to see our own story unfold. They were in slavery. God sent one person, Moses, to rescue them. He called them out of slavery. And then what happened? As soon as they had crossed the Red Sea, what happened? After they were saved, they became God's people. God said to Moses in Exodus 6, right? I'm going to call them out of slavery, and I am going to make them my people, and I will be their God, and I'm going to also give them a place to live in. That's our story, isn't it? We're in slavery to sin, and then God sends one person, Jesus, to bring us out of slavery, and he gives us a place to live, the kingdom of heaven. But then the next point still applies to us. The first thing that happens is God leads them to Mount Sinai and gives them the law. You see, the law was never about telling them how they could be saved. It was about telling them who, who they were, how they were to live as God's people. And the key, the core of this is that the law was given to the people to show them how holy God is and to show them how they could live up to his holiness. This is what, this is what Leviticus 11 says. For I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, is the actual word. I am Yahweh who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy as I am holy. All these laws, all these commands were given to the people to remind them that God is holy, and so they should be holy. Set apart from the rest of the world. They were to be radically different from the world around them, so that the world would see how radically different God is. Is this starting to sound familiar yet? There was a certain way they had to live to show the world how radically different God is to show them what God is doing in the world. And so when it came to eating certain types of food and, and to wearing types of clothes, it's all about God setting his people apart. Another example, Leviticus 19. In those days, uh, you see the pagans would, uh, when they were uh, mourning the dead and worshiping the dead, they would cut themselves and they would make tattoos and marks on their body. And God says, you shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am Yahweh. Don't worship the dead. Be separate from that. We don't worship the dead because we worship God. That's what, that's what that law is about. Be separate from the world as I am living in the world. And when they broke these laws, they had a sacrificial system, didn't they? I'm sure if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you've heard of this. And it works a bit like this. God is holy and pure, right? So in order to be close to God, you have to be holy and pure. You can't be close to God because his purity is so intense that, that you'll actually be burned up. It'll actually destroy you to be close to his purity because you're so, impurity, you're so impure. 
And so in order to be pure, in order to be close to God, a price has to be paid for your sin, right? The wrongs have to be accounted for. Now, some of us, uh, that, you know, that sounds a bit unfair, but listen, let me put it this way. Imagine you're out in the street and, and you get assaulted. And then it goes to court and the judge says, meh, don't worry about it. You would feel that that's pretty unjust, wouldn't you? In the same way as you want that crime to be paid for, that's exactly what God is doing with our sin. There's a price that has to be paid. Sin needs to be paid for or atoned for was the Old Testament word. And so the way to do this in the Old Testament was that an innocent animal would be killed. And it was meant to be gross and messy and disgusting to remind us how gross and messy and disgusting our sin is. And you would, uh, the, the, the animal would take the punishment for your sin and so you could be clean again and temporarily have your sins forgiven and temporarily walk in fellowship with God. And so when Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law and all the commands of the law, this is what he's talking about. He fulfills the commands of the law by obeying them, right? So firstly, he, he lives a perfect sinless life. He doesn't do anything wrong. He perfectly obeys all the laws. He's the only person that ever lived that could fulfill the law, that could meet the law's demands. He's the only person. He, he was holy just as his father was holy. That thing we read from, from Leviticus, be holy as I am holy, that's what Jesus did. As a human man was holy just as the father is holy. And not only does he obey the commands of the law, he embodies the commands of the law. So he's the sacrifice that, that, that makes us clean and takes our sin away, that pays the price for our sin. Right, So it was the job of the priest to make the sacrifice. The, job would, the priest would have to kill the animal and sprinkle its blood and burn its flesh and all this kind of stuff. But listen to this. Jesus is the only, he, he's the only priest that was also the sacrifice. He was the priest and the sacrifice. Hebrew 9 tells us that, that Christ is the sacrifice that has been offered to bear the sins of many once and for all. Jesus became the sacrifice. He makes us clean. All that sacrificial system, all the laws, the weird things that we find difficult, that was all pointing to Jesus. He was the once and for all sacrifice that makes us permanently clean. I thank God for that. Just defile myself time and time again. Like just. But the good news is, right? Jesus' blood did what the blood of a thousand, of ten thousand, of a million innocent animals could ever do. Why? Because he was the perfect sacrifice. He was, the, he was without sin, and yet he died for our sin. Not only so that we could escape the punishment of our sin, but so that we could be with God forever. He doesn't just, he doesn't just pay off our debts. He fills our bank account. Jesus was without sin. He died for our sin so that we could not only escape the punishment for our sin, but so that we could be in the presence of God forever, so that we could have abundant, unending, eternal life to the full. Amen? Come on, amen. It's good news, guys. That's what I'm saying. Jesus has shown us that it's all about him. All the histories, all the stories, all the prophecies, all the laws. Jesus is the point of history. Jesus is the point. And here's the bit I want to take away before we move on. God's redemption plan for the world has always been Jesus Christ, is now Jesus Christ, and will always be Jesus Christ. This is why we go to church, to glorify God. This is, he's the point. Jesus is the point. This is why we're on mission, because we know Jesus is the point, and we want to show other people that Jesus is the point. 
Jesus has always been the plan. And that's why Jesus says in verse 18 that even the smallest parts of the law can't be removed. It's not, none of this is going to pass away until the end of time. And you're like, well, hang on a second, because um, I'm pretty sure that uh, I cut the hair on the side of my head. I mean, for me, that's all hair I have, so I have to cut the hair on the side of my head. Or, or I wear blended shirts, or, or I eat bacon, or all these kind, I get tattoos, whatever. So why is Jesus saying all this, uh, well, none of this will be removed until uh, the end of time? Look at verse 18. He says, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The iota is the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. It's just a little stroke. A dot was referring to in the Hebrew, a little, a little stroke of the pen that, that helped to decipher between uh, different words in Hebrew. I checked with a graphic designer. It's the way we have serifs. So a serif is the, the flick at the end of an A, that kind of thing. And so often in books, if you're looking at your Bible, you'll probably see it's written in a serif font. It has little tails on the letters, the, the wee tails that, that help the words flow together. They don't change the meaning but they help it flow together. They help us to read it easier. So these, an iota or a dot is kind of like a, a serif for us in English. And Jesus is saying that all of this matters. Even the smallest parts can't be removed. And why? Because it's all about Jesus. And if you tamper with even the smallest part, you're tampering with the gospel. That's why he says, until all is accomplished. The law has a job to do. The law leads us to Jesus. The law points us to Jesus. You see, the, the, the law and grace aren't enemies, right? We sometimes think that that was an old, angry God in the Old Testament, but now we like the loving, forgiving Jesus in the New Testament. It's the same God that we shouldn't make the Old and New Testament enemies of each other. John Stott says this, the function of the law is not to bestow salvation, but to convince men of their need of us, their, their need of it. The function of the law is not to bestow salvation, not to give us salvation, but to show us our need of it, right? So like the, the, the scan reveals the cancer, that's the job of the law. And then you get the treatment which is going to heal you. The law and grace are not enemies. Listen to what Paul says. He says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that, righteous, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law has been fulfilled in us when we accept Jesus, so that we can walk by the Spirit. So when we come to the Old Testament, when we ask this question uh, uh, of morality, here's what we need to not do. We don't neglect it. We don't ignore it. We don't change it. We don't excuse it. We don't leave bits out because it's all about Jesus. All of history pointing to Jesus. So, so when, when someone says to you, um, well, Christians kind of just pick and choose, don't they? Because all, you eat bacon, but you're a Christian. The answer is it's all about Jesus. You have to understand the premise of the Bible that's all about Jesus. Otherwise, none of this is going to make sense. Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of God's eternal plan for the world. It's all about Jesus. That's our first point. Don't worry, this last two are going to go a lot quicker. Secondly then, obedience to Jesus matters. So, are Christians bound by a moral law? Well, obedience to Jesus matters. Look at verse 19. Um, therefore, 
Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay? So, there's a golden rule when you're reading the Bible. When you see the word therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. Thanks, Thomas. When you see the word therefore, you need to stop and ask what it's there for. Okay? You can, uh, you can have that. It's for free. So why is this word therefore? Well, Jesus is saying, look, I fulfilled all this stuff. I'm the point of history. I fulfill, I'm fulfilling all of history. So therefore, so this has an effect in your lives. In other words, uh, I fulfilled all this stuff, so obedience to me matters. I'm not doing away with it. I'm actually fulfilling it, so you need to obey me. In fact, Jesus says that our standing in the kingdom of heaven depends upon it. Now, I don't know exactly what this looks like. A lot of this stuff hasn't been revealed to us. But, but, but what I do know is that the people who teach, the people that obey Jesus and teach others to obey Jesus will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I don't know about you, but, but I don't just want to sneak in the back door of the kingdom of heaven. I don't want to be like that. And, and, and the people, he says that the people who, who don't uh, obey these things and who don't teach others to do these things will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. You see, what he's getting at is this. Just because Jesus has fulfilled the law doesn't mean that we go on living however we want to, right? We're not, we're not, we're not just free to do whatever we want to do. Paul says this in Romans 6. Well, we say Paul says, but it's actually God speaking, speaking through Paul. He says this, Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it, right? What does that mean? The law has shown us our sin. We've died to our sin when we accept Jesus. That's why we practice baptism. You're buried, you die to your sin. You're buried in the waters of baptism. You're raised with Jesus to walk in newness of life. There's a prescribed way to live as the people of God in the world. The book of Galatians tells us that we need to obey the law of Christ. So it's almost like Jesus fulfilled the law, but that doesn't mean that oh, well, I get to ignore all of that. We obey the law of Christ. Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 9 that, that we're no, under, no longer under the law. He knows that. I'm not a Jew. Uh, but we are under the law of Christ. In other words, we obey the commands of Jesus. So the question is, the challenge for us is, what does your life look like? Are you obeying the commands of Jesus? Quite simply, are you obeying the commands of Jesus? So you see, of course we can eat shellfish and bacon and all the delicious things, right? We can cut our hair, we can get tattoos, we can wear blended clothes. Because when we're walking in obedience to Jesus, we're going to live in a way that's set apart from the world, that shows us to be radically different. That's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. That's what salt and light is. We live in a way that's set apart from the world and we're safe in the knowledge that Jesus is our once and for all sacrifice that covers all our sins. So even when we do sin, it's covered by his once and for all sacrifice. So Jesus can say, uh, obey these commands. I fulfilled all of this, so now obey me. All of this points to me, so now obey me. I'm teaching you how to live and showing you how to live. So obey me. Live as the salt of the earth and the light of the world, right? 
And the point of this, the point is this, just as the people of the Old Testament obeyed the law to live as God's people, we obey Jesus to live as God's people. And you might be thinking, well, what about all the law? He, the, of course, we're going we're gonna to fulfill the law. We're going to fulfill the law as Jesus did if we obey him. So a lot, of the times we, a lot of the times we will be directly obeying the Old Testament law, right? Jesus doesn't say it's okay to murder, so we still obey that command that says don't murder. But the point is we need to obey Jesus. This is how we live as people of God in the world. And I think especially for us in our culture, we need to obey Jesus, right? Uh, Man, the world needs moral standards now more than ever. We saw this as the salt, right? Uh, Salt prevents the the decay, the social decay and rot. That's what salt does. The world needs the church more than ever. In our culture, that tells us to just do whatever makes you feel good, right? Be who you are. Don't you dare let anyone tell you who you are. Do, do sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. Do whatever you want to with your own body. Kill that baby growing inside you. Whatever you want to do, it's all good. Has there ever been a time when the world needs the morality of Jesus more? Guys, this is actually a better way to live. A way that's going to make you happy forever. A way that's going to fulfill you. A way that's going to sustain you. Do you remember those, um, remember those WWJD bracelets? Back in the, was that the 90s? Yeah, they, they were really cool, weren't they? <laughs> I definitely had one as well. I probably had like a couple. You know when you had, always had like a few bangles on? Why'd you have a few? I don't know. But they actually make a really good point. Imagine if in every situation in your life, no matter how big or how small, you stopped and you said, you asked yourself, what is the way of Jesus in this situation? What's the way of Jesus in this situation? What does it look like for me to live out the kingdom in this situation? Because that's what we're called to do. So when it comes to our money, how am I going to spend my money? How am I going to save my money? How am I going to be generous with my money? How am I going to get my money? I'm going to obey Jesus. When it comes to our relationships, what what would our marriages look like? Or our friendships look like? What would they look like if we were to ask, what's the way of Jesus in this situation? When it comes to our jobs and our friendships and our, and our parenting, we obey Jesus. Here's the point. As followers of Jesus, our lives will be radically different to the world because Jesus is the point. We, we don't, our lives will be radically different not because we obey the commands of the Old Testament, but because we follow the way of Jesus who fulfills the Old Testament. And finally then, our, our, this leads me, has to be the question, how do we do this? Because it seems like a big call, doesn't it? And this brings us on to our last point. We need the righteousness of Jesus. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I, I mean, it's, it's hard not to have sympathy whenever his disciples or with his disciples when they heard this, right? Imagine how they felt, right? Because they were just a gang of, of fishermen and tax collectors. They, they weren't holy men. They weren't, they weren't spiritual leaders. They weren't experts in the Old Testament law. And Jesus says, your righteousness, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. And our wee hearts must have sank. 
You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the spiritual big dogs, right? They were the, they were the daddies of, of the, man, they knew how to obey the law. They knew how to be righteous. They knew how to be moral. They were so good at keeping the law that they even added a, 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 few, ex, a few hundred extra laws on top to make, just to make sure they were keeping the law, right? So for, I'll give you an example. Um, the law, the Old Testament law, says that you, you don't work on the Sabbath. You have one day a week set aside uh, that, is, that is for your rest, for your enjoyment, for connecting with, with God again. And so they thought, right, well, we can't work on the Sabbath. So they invented a law which said that you can't move your chair on the Sabbath because when you move your chair, it might, um, sorry, Jamesy, it might make a furrow in the ground. And that's plowing and that's working. So, I don't know, maybe they just stood around the table on the Sabbath for their Sunday roast, I don't know, but it's weird, isn't it? But yet we do the same. We miss the point, right? How many, we put all our energy into being holy. We put all our energy into moral and upright. And, and, and we miss the point. We miss the point that the purpose of the law is to show us how holy our God is, not how holy we are. These guys were so focused on their outward behavior that they forgot about their point, their, their hearts. You can obey the law and not have righteousness, right? Righteousness is far more than moralism. It's, it's nothing to do with our being good or nothing to do with our being moral. It's, it's nothing to do with being good living. We love being good living in Northern Ireland, don't we? We just love a bit of good living. Well, I better not put my washing out on a Sunday in case the neighbors see that I'm not obeying the Sabbath, please. And Jesus said, no amount of good living is going to get you into the kingdom of heaven. We need a, a greater righteousness than being good living. We need the righteousness of Jesus. And this is what all the Old Testament has been telling you. And this is what all the New Testament is telling us. It's all pointing to this one simple fact. We need Jesus. Like John said, you're struggling at being a mom, or you're struggling because you don't have a mom, or you're struggling because you want to be a mom. You need Jesus. You need Jesus in every situation. That's why we sing this song, one of my favorite songs, I Need Thee Every Hour. See, what Jesus does is he, he raises the stakes. He ups the ante. I can't think of another poker analogy, but... He, he raises the stakes. He says it's not about what you do, it's about your heart. And next week, and the next few weeks, and he, he starts to unpack this. So when he talks about anger, he says, listen, it's not about the anger. It's about what's going on in your heart when you are angry, right? It's not about, what, it's not about fasting. It's about what's going on in your heart when you are fasting. In the kingdom of God, the standard of the law becomes the start line, not the finish line, right? You don't just go, well, I didn't murder anyone today, so that's a pretty good job. That's ridiculous. Not murdering people is the least you can do in the kingdom of heaven, right? Jesus goes for the heart. You see, we often think that it's what we do. We often think that it's, 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 um, it's what we do that defiles us, that makes us unclean. But Jesus says, actually what you do is just, it's just a symptom of what's inside you right? He goes for the heart. Listen to this in Mark 7. 
Mark 7, he's just, all the scribes and the Pharisees are giving him a hard time because he said, all the foods are clean. Don't tell my boys that they can't eat that because I'm saying that they can, right? And this is what he says, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So by saying that, that we need to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, Jesus is saying we need a heart change, isn't he? We need a heart change. If you want to change how you live, don't look at how you live. Look at what's in your heart. You can do all the right things. You can say all the right, uh, right words. You can know all the words to the worship songs. You can know all the right prayers. You can even give an insightful comment in your Bible study on a Wednesday night or whatever it is. You can be generous with your money and your time. You can live self-sacrificial lives. You, you can do all of those things. Do what you're meant to do on the outward, on the outside appearance. You might look really moral and upright. But here's the point. If your heart is far from God, none of that matters. If your heart is far from God, all your good works are in vain. All your good living doesn't matter. We need the righteousness of Jesus. And we're nearly done, but I don't want to skip out this point. We can't do it on our own. That's why we need Jesus. Jesus is the one, the subject of every story, the proof of every prophecy, the, the one who completes all the commands, the one who became the sacrifice so that we could be clean, so that he could actually, you know the Bible says that he imputes his righteousness to us. That means that he literally puts his righteousness onto us. If you're a Christian, you have the righteousness of Christ on you. This is the message of the gospel. God's standard is so high. How are you ever going to reach up to that? And God is so pure and we are so impure that, that, that we can't even be in his presence. But God comes to us in Jesus. And he takes on my sin. He takes on my disgustingness. He takes on all the things that make me impure. He takes on the nature of me that is impure. And instead he gives me his righteousness. And this is why Paul, the Apostle Paul, um, the guy who at one point, he was, he was, he calls himself the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the guy that was the best in the world. He's the best. You want to see a Pharisee? Paul's the best in the business. Oh, he knows how to keep a law. But after he meets Jesus, this is what he says in Philippians 3. He says, whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. All his righteousness, all his law keeping, all his good living, it's all rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Paul realized that all his law-keeping, all his being moral, all his being good, all of efforts to make himself pure, it was all worthless. And he needs the righteousness of Jesus. We need the righteousness of Jesus. And this isn't just a done deal. You just don't become a Christian and sit back. I've got the righteousness of Jesus. We need it every day, every hour. Think about the things you've even thought during the past 45 minutes or whatever it has been. Think about all the things you've thought. You need the righteousness of Jesus. When you're with your kids, you need the righteousness of Jesus. Me, when I'm driving, man, I need the righteousness of Jesus. Haley will tell you, like, you want to see my worst? Just get in the car with me, sit in the passenger seat. 
So when we trust in Jesus, he puts his righteousness on us. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. And that's the only way we can enter the kingdom. It's the only way we can live as people of the kingdom. I'm going to finish with this. In Jeremiah 31, in the Old Testament, um, there's a prophecy that says this. It says, there will come a day when I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. See, when you put your, if you're trusting in Jesus, he has put his law in your heart, right? All of this, that's in your heart. You don't have to go into the details to understand it. By the power of the Spirit leading you and, 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 and guiding you through life, you know how to obey Jesus. And he gives you the, the, the power to love God and love others. That, that Later on, Jesus is going to say, that's the point of, of the law, that all the other law hinges on this. Love God and love others. And when you do that, when you have his law written in your heart, it becomes the reigning motivation for everything else you do. If you love God, you're not going to worship other gods. If you love God, you're not going to take the Lord's name in vain. If you love God, you'll love people because they're made in the image of God. If you love people, you're not going to murder them. You're not going to steal from them. You're not going to, uh, you're not going to lust after your friends. You're not going to commit adultery. You see, when God's law is written in your heart, we're transformed, and we all need this. We all need the righteousness of Jesus. And when God's law is written in our hearts, we'll see that, that, that it's all about Jesus. You'll desire to obey Jesus, and you'll simply put your trust in his righteousness and not your own. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I think we should probably just confess to you as a church and as a people uh, that we rely on our own righteousness too much. Before we come to the table and celebrate your, your, your death and resurrection, when you actually gave us your righteousness, we need to confess that we are sinful and we just compound that sinfulness by trying to clean ourselves up. So Lord, help us today to, to, to not try and rely on our own righteousness, but just to trust Jesus that you are good and you came to us in the middle of our filth, in the middle of our need, and you provided for us the righteousness that we needed. Thank you that we get to uh, be in your family. Thank you that we get to be members of your kingdom. Uh, let us come joyfully to the table this morning, Lord, and celebrate all that you've done for us. Help us, Lord. We need you every hour. Amen. Um, we're going to come to the table. Um, we're going to take, take the bread and, uh, and dip it in the wine. And as we do that, I want you to reflect on, am I living on my own righteousness? Or am I living on this, which symbolizes Jesus' righteousness? Right? And, you know, people, people say to me, uh, well, actually, just this week, someone's like, what kind of things do you teach in your church? And I'm like, it's pretty much the same thing every day. Pretty much the same thing every week. And it's the thing we're going to keep teaching, the thing we're going to be singing about for all of eternity. And it's this, that Jesus died. He became the sacrifice for us so that I could have his righteousness. So we could have his righteousness. If you're not a Christian, then, then don't come forward for this. Um, uh, this is something that Jesus has given just for his people, just for his followers, because of the significance of it. And it's not about being exclusive. It's, it's about because of the significance of it for his people. So if you're not a Christian, just accept Jesus. You can do that just where you are in your seat. But if you are a Christian, then come joyfully because you have Jesus' righteousness on you. All the stuff that used to keep you separated from Jesus, that's all been paid for. You're wiped clean. So come forward joyfully. Uh, there'll be a station over there and a station over here. And, 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 and hear the words. Uh, the body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ set for you. Let's, let's stand and we're going to sing and, and, and come to the table.